0: Today's reading is Acts 22:1 one through 22. Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. When they heard him address them in Aramaic, they became even more quiet. Paul continued, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but raised in this city. Under Gamaliel's instruction, I was trained in the strict interpretation of our ancestral law, I am passionately loyal to God, just like you who are gathered here today. I harassed those who followed this way to their death, arresting and delivering both men and women into prison. The high priest and the whole Jerusalem council can testify about me. I received letters from them, addressed to our associates in Damascus, and then went there to bring those who were arrested to Jerusalem so they could be punished. During that journey, about noon, as I approached Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven encircled me. I fell to the ground and I heard a voice asking me, Saul, Saul, why are you harassing me? I answered, who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, the Nazarene who you're harassing, he replied. My traveling companions, they saw the light, but they didn't hear the voice of the one who spoke to me. I asked, what should I do, Lord? Get up, the Lord replied, and go into Damascus. There you will be told everything you have been appointed to do. I couldn't see because of the brightness of that light, so my companions led me by the hand into Damascus. There was a certain man named Ananias, and according to the standards of the law, he was a pious man who enjoyed the respect of all the Jews living there. He came and he stood beside me. Brother Saul, receive your sight, he said, and instantly I regained my sight and I could see him. He said, the God of our ancestors has selected you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear his voice. You will be his witness to everyone concerning what you have seen and heard. What are you waiting for? Get up. Be baptized. Wash away your sins as you call on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and I was praying in the temple, I had a visionary experience. I saw the Lord speaking to me. Hurry, he said. Leave Jerusalem at once because they won't accept your testimony about me. I responded, Lord, those people know I used to go from one synagogue to the next, beating those who believe in you, throwing them into prison. When Stephen, your witness, was being killed, I stood there giving my approval, even watching the clothes that belonged to those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they shouted, Away with this man! He is not fit to live. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Good to be with you, Grace. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Daniel Long, a pastor here. Those of you who are tuning in, streaming, welcome. Um, just a wonderful, wonderful community to be a part of, to worship with. So grateful for, so grateful for that orienting time of singing truths about who God is and his goodness and what we can trust about him. I have some family news, and it's great news. Uh, so the middle school director, Brandon Roa, and his fiance Cal, are no longer engaged because they're married. Yes. So they got married, they got married yesterday. It's good to see those of you who were at the wedding here because it was... Late, late night, but man, it was, it's fun and such a, such a uh, wonderful privilege to be able to celebrate um, with, with Brandon and, and with our church in that way. So just to let you know to, so that you can pray for them. So here's my question as we're about to turn into the, to praying for the sermon. Do you expect to hear from God today? Like, have you come expecting that God has something to say? I was convicted on the way in this morning... Uh, kind of the flip side do I expect God to speak Uh, do I expect God to speak through his word through me because it's easy to to kind of to get here to do what we usually do and then not have that sense of expectation that God might have something to say so I'm going to pray but here's also an encouragement as the sermon is being shared something might grab a hold of you and I want to encourage you to stay there and not you don't even need to listen to the rest of the things that I say. Because chances are that God has had, said something to you that you need to sit with and hold on to. So I'm just going to assume if your eyes are closed that that is what you're thinking about. You are just reflecting and contemplating that something uh, God has said to you. No, but seriously, often that happens, right? In a moment of worship or even when we're listening, God says something and we can't get it out of our minds. I'd like to encourage you that that's perhaps the spirit wanting you to hold on to something to encourage you to convict you to welcome you in so let's pray let's pray with expectancy that God has something to say God you are the one who speaks you are the one who is the word that was made flesh in the person of Jesus you come to us you move toward us you call us you invite us you say to follow you You tell us that you are good. You tell us that you can be trusted. You tell us to repent. God, there are so many things that you say to us all the time, and I ask that you would help us to hear them, that this morning we might be open to the possibility that you have something to say. And it may not be something new. It may be something old that we hear in a new way. But whatever it is, God, I ask that you would help us to listen to be dependent upon your spirit, that you are wanting to shape and form us into the likeness of Christ. And God, I ask that you would help us to get out of the way of that process and to rather participate in the work that you're doing in our lives, in the lives of others, in our church, in our city, in the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So if you want you can turn in your Bibles to acts chapter twenty one we 're still in a series there are actually only two sermons left this one and then one other one that 's going to be in November in the book of acts it 's been a great great journey um, and our time with with these these newly this newly formed community that 's been formed by the spirit and empowered by the spirit to be It's messengers of the gospel, the good news of Jesus in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. And so we're getting to that point where we're getting to the ends of the earth. We're seeing Paul being moved closer and closer to Rome, which is the ends of the earth, according to Luke, who's writing Acts. And we have the crazy job this morning of working through Acts 21 through 26. I don't know whose idea this was. It was a terrible one. That was totally my idea. But the reason why we're doing this is because this feels like a mini-series to me. Acts 21 through 26 is one long saga, one long scene of Paul being accused of something, being in prison, and we hear his defense over and over and over again. But here's the good news, I think, of this text this morning that we're going to be moving toward, is that God's purposes always Find a way. God's purposes always somehow find a way. And we're going to look at this from Acts 21 all the way through Acts 26. And so here's the broad outline. I tried to break it down for you if you can read what's happening in the different chapters and, and where, what's happening to Paul. And so what we're going to see is in Acts 21, we see the initial, initial charges and Paul's arrest. Then it's going to move into Acts 22, where we see Paul gives his first defense, but then he's taken back to prison. In Acts 23, we see Paul's second defense before the council. The Lord encourages Paul in prison, and then Paul is sent to Felix, the governor. Acts 24, the trial continues, and we hear Paul's third defense. Acts 25, there's a change of power from Felix to Festus, and then Paul gives his fourth defense. And then Acts 26 is Paul's fifth defense before King Agrippa. So you can hear the, the, the repetition in there is, is that there are tr- constant charges being brought before Paul, and he is then forced to give a defense based on the charges that have been brought against him. And so I want to look this morning at the charges, the defense, and then the implications. And so first, beginning with the charges... How did this whole thing get started? And if you want, you can look down in Acts 21. We're going to start in verse 27. So when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia who had seen him in the temple stirred up the whole crowd. They seized him shouting, Fellow Israelites, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against our people, our law, and this place. More than that, he has actually brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was aroused, and the people rushed together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. While they were trying to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. Immediately he took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. When they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came, arrested him, and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing, some another, and as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. When Paul came to the steps, the violence of the mob was so great that he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, away with him. So a few things to note at the beginning of this saga, of this mini-series. So Paul comes back to Jerusalem after being with the Gentiles and spreading the message, and he actually comes to James, and James says, people have heard about you. People have heard about what you're doing, and they don't feel good about it. Here's what we suggest you do. We suggest you go through the, the rite of purification which was a process of being purified because of some sort of defilement, either being close to someone or to something that they shouldn't have been close to. They are then therefore defiled and not able to participate in temple worship because of God's presence, not needing to be uh, defiled in any way. And so Paul actually undergoes this process, wanting again to, to continue being his Jewish self but also in line with this new, different thing that the Spirit is up to. He goes through this process, and it's during the end of this process that these people come to Paul, then wanting to accuse him of speaking against their law, their people, and defiling the temple. We're going to see this all throughout these these seven chapters of Paul being accused of these things that he's doing. If you were to turn to 24, verses 5 through 8, we would see that the Jews call, him, call Paul a pestilent fellow, an agitator among all the Jews throughout the world, a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, because again, Jesus was from Nazareth, and so they assume that there's this new sect of the Nazarenes. They again claim that he is trying to profane the temple. So these charges are being, are being lobbed at Paul but he actually reinterprets them them as something else, as an issue primarily about the resurrection. Now, if you want, you can turn your Bibles to Acts 23. We're going to look starting at verse 6. When Paul noticed that some were Sadducees, so here he is again Giving his defense in front of people, he noticed some were Sadducees and others were Pharisees. He called out in the council, "'Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am on trial concerning the hope of the resurrection of the dead.'" Now, when he said this, a dissension began between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection or angel or spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge all three. Then a great clamor arose, and certain scribes of the Pharisees' group stood up and contended, We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? When the dissension became violent, the tribune, fearing that they would tear Paul to pieces, ordered the soldiers to go down, take him by force, and bring him into the barracks. That night the Lord stood near him and said, Keep up your courage, for just as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must bear witness also in Rome." And so Paul makes this about something larger about the resurrection. And he says this to Jews who have different minds regarding the resurrection. Sadducees, Pharisees. Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. Pharisees did. And so this creates an uproar, creates a division. And all of a sudden, Paul's at the center of it, and it says the, tri- the tribune, which was this, like this Roman court hearing these cases, and, and these soldiers that were trying to keep order around the temple, uh, said they were afraid that they were going to tear him to pieces, so they brought him back to jail. So the charges against Paul, according to his accusers, have to do with his speaking against the law, the people, and defiling the temple, whereas for Paul, this is actually about the resurrection. How? Why the discrepancy? Why the difference? Well, because for Paul, the resurrection has changed literally everything. The resurrection then becomes the interpretive lens on which you think about, understand history, people, law, and temple. Because of the resurrection, Paul then claims that he was met by Jesus on the Damascus Road, and was then given a mission to the Gentiles. See, the Jews think it's about these other matters. For Paul, it might be about those other matters, but only in light of the resurrection of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. So those are the difference of the charges. So then what about the defense, Paul's defense? So here's some key passages of Paul's defense that we see. And I'm just going to talk in big, broad terms about how he's defending himself in these passages. Because here's my hope. My hope is that, honestly, you take these different hooks, you go home, you read Acts 21 through 26, because it is a remarkable piece of literature. It feels like you're reading this adventure story with this person named Paul at the center with a message that needs to go out and that is trying to be suppressed. So some of the key passages we find of Paul's defense, and there are five defense that he gives in Acts 22, 23, 24, 25, and then 26. But here are the main elements of how Paul defends himself. And we can see this pretty clearly in Acts 24, starting in verse 10. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Acts 24, 10. So when the governor motioned to Paul to speak, he replied, I cheerfully make my defense, knowing that for many years you've been a judge over this nation. As you can find out, it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. They did not find me disputing with anyone in the temple or stirring up a crowd, either in the synagogues or throughout the city. Neither can they prove to you the charge that they now bring against me. But this I admit to you. "...that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our ancestors, believing everything laid down according to the law or written in the prophets. I have a hope in God, a hope that they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the unrighteous. Therefore, I do my best always to have a clear conscience toward God and all the people. Now, after some years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to offer sacrifices." And while I was doing this, they found me in the temple, completing the rite of purification without any crowd or disturbance. But there were some Jews from Asia. They ought to be here before you make an accusation, if they have anything against me. Or let these men here tell what crime they had found when I stood before the council, unless it was this one sentence that I called out while standing before them. It is about the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today." So Paul has been transferred from Jerusalem to Caesarea, where Felix the governor is. The reason he's transferred is because there was a plot to kill Paul. And so in the middle of the night, this Roman tribune, they basically tried to sneak Paul out of the city, down to Caesarea, so he comes before the governor, and he's given his defense before the governor. And the things that he says, that he appeals to, and he appeals to all throughout these passages, all throughout these chapters, is that... He is a Jew. He is still part of the Jewish people. He is not trying to defile the law or the temple. He is not trying to create dissension. Paul believes that what God has done in Jesus and in the resurrection creates continuity, that there is still a connection between what God has done in the past and what God is doing now in the resurrected Lord Jesus. This is, this is not a new thing. He actually says that the hope that he's proclaiming, this hope of the resurrection, is a hope that they themselves share. They are to believe in the hope of the resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous. He was a Pharisee of the most strict sect of Judaism actually so much so that he was a zealot, bringing Christians to prison, killing Christians on behalf of the message. But then the resurrected Lord Jesus met him on the road, and his life and message and whole trajectory was changed. But this isn't entirely new. This is what God has always been wanting to do. This is his defense this is what he's trying to proclaim and he's trying to say. And so then as we think about these different char- the charges, which is he's speaking against the people, Paul is speaking against the people and against the law and defiling the temple. Well, the way the resurrection changes all of that and why it's so offensive to these religious authorities is that because of the resurrection, the people... ...of God have been expanded. The reach of God expands beyond the Jews to the Gentiles. That's offensive. The law, he is not speaking against the law. Because of the resurrection, we see that Jesus himself... ...is actually the fulfillment of the law. Everything the law was about, saying, pointing to... ...finds its complete and utter perfect interpretation in the person of Jesus Christ. And he's not defiling the temple, but because of the resurrection, the presence of God is, in a way, let go. And it's not bound any longer to the temple. But it resides through the Spirit in God's people and in the church. Now, these things, if you imagine, having believed a certain way and not just believing a certain way, but because of that belief, having specific expectations about what things are to be and how things are to be understood, that is a certain type of death when all of a sudden that is being reconfigured. I mean, have you felt and experienced that before that you thought so strongly about the ways that you believed, how you understood the world, that when you were confronted with perhaps a different way of understanding that it actually felt like a death, like a letting go, in a way that it might create, as it created with these different Jewish um, tribes, this uproar, this division, this fighting, and then all of a sudden this new message becomes, or the person with the message becomes the point of contention. That we need to get away, that we need to put in prison, that we need to ultimately kill. See, Paul understands himself as proclaiming the ultimate hope of Jewish faith. Turn in your Bibles to Acts 26. We're going to look toward the end of this saga. Starting in verse 22. Actually, I'm going to start in verse 19. After that, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, and Paul is continuing to testify, and this is toward the end of his testimony, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout the countryside of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God and do deeds consistent with repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had help from God, and so I stand here testifying to both small and great saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would take place, that the Messiah must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. So Paul is saying, look, this is the ultimate hope and expectation of Jewish faith. They just can't see it. And it's easy to dismiss them. It's easy to dismiss perhaps the jewish religious authorities as just you just need to get with the program but is it easy for us to get with the program is it easy for us to let go of the things and our of the hopes the expectations all the assumptions that we've held when god seems to be saying something different it is not easy often we want to go at war to war even internally, maybe with others regarding these things. See, the question is one of darkness and light. And this is an image Paul brings up in these chapters. And we read it here is the sense that because of this message, light is being brought into darkness. And so we think of the images that Jesus even used of, of sight and blindness. And see, that is the question of faith. Have we experienced and received the light of Jesus that then makes sense of the world? Are we still living in darkness? Are we people who are blind, perhaps, to those long-held things that we find so important that give our life meaning and so therefore cannot see what is right in front of us, which is that God has done something new in the person of Jesus? In many ways, as we think of this story, we think of Jesus Christ. We think of Jesus before the people who just cannot understand, who cannot grasp this new thing that is connected to the old with what God is doing. And so then what are the implications of these charges, the defense? What are the implications of the sense of the resurrection being the most Clear interpretation, at least for Paul, revelation of what God is doing and has always been doing in the people of Israel through the law and that the temple is supposed to point toward. Well, the first implication is this. Allegiance to the risen Lord Jesus Christ is the point. Allegiance to the risen Lord Jesus Christ is everything. Allegiance to tradition, to even our old religious habits, no. Allegiance to our expectations of how we think God should work? No. Where is our allegiance to be found? In the person of Jesus Christ. That is the point. That is the absolute point. And Paul seems to proclaim this has to do with the resurrection. And if people could understand that this new thing God is doing is seen in the resurrected Lord, then they would know that Jesus is in fact Lord over all. He is the one to be giving us meaning he is the one that we take our cues from he is the one that is to help us understand what it's all about but again that allegiance is hard and it's under constant constant tension because our hearts want to be aligned with so many other things other than jesus but if you see because it's about allegiance to jesus we see that Paul becomes a witness throughout these passages to religious tradition and to culture, which is fascinating to me. So we we see Paul constantly in contention with his own Jewish faith and those who are trying to uphold that faith, but we also see that Paul is pulled and taken to be a witness before the Roman authorities. So he's a witness to both The faith tradition and to the culture. Now, as I think about our own time and place, it's an interesting thing because it means that Jesus is actually the center, is the one that we are to be aligned to, and we are to be a witness to both. But we live in a world that wants to actually pull us into either direction, where we are constantly held and bound in some ways to what we thought and what we imagined, but then we're also pulled to toward culture, where it doesn't really matter much. And if you, think, if you read this and you see the governors and you see the different authorities, they're constantly confounded by what Paul is saying. What's the big deal, they think? This is crazy that people would fight over these things. No, but it matters, and it matters because it's about Jesus. So if it's ultimately about Christ, And not the religious establishment or cultural power, then it means that we, as God's witnesses, like Paul, will always be at odds. Our life is a life of tension. So if you're wanting me to resolve that for you, or if you want the church to resolve that for you, or if you hope that Jesus will resolve that for you, the bad news is Jesus is here to create it, to create the tension to create the conflict. Why? Because your allegiance, our allegiance, is to be toward Him, not toward anything else. So if we're at odds, we're going to be at odds to both tradition and culture. It means there's no middle ground. There's an entirely new plane altogether, a new understanding of reality that takes its cues from the risen Lord Jesus Christ. It means that Christ is the way. It means that His kingdom is the politic. It means that His life is the ethic. And this is uncomfortable, and this is difficult, because we live in such an unimaginative world that wants to create binaries and wants to give us a choice that ultimately isn't the choice of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. But that is where our attention is to be drawn. That is to give shape And understanding to our faith together. Come follow me, Jesus says. Come follow me. So that means there are not two choices, there's only one choice, and that choice is Jesus Christ. So the question is, and I think this is the question that Paul is constantly raising, is do you pledge allegiance to something other than Jesus? Do you pledge allegiance to something other than Jesus? Because if you do, then chances are it will be hard to see outside of the darkness. It will be hard to gain the sight that Jesus wants to give. Now, here's the second implication. And the most wonderful news is that the purposes of God always find a way. Now, the beginning of this saga and the end of this saga, there are two important images that we're to remember about Paul. And it's this, his hands are bound. He is put in chains at the beginning, and he is never out of them until the very end. And now if we think about the life of Paul in these seven chapters, what we see is that Paul has honestly no agency. His hands are chained. He is brought into prison. He is brought back out. He's allowed to give a defense. He is uh, removed in the middle of the night because there's a plot to kill him. He is brought back out again before councils. there's There's a change of power between Felix to Festus. Then he's brought before King Agrippa. Paul makes no choices in these seven chapters. And yet, and yet, he is still witnessing to the hope that God has given him. Paul has no agency but he is not powerless. And he is not powerless because of the risen Lord Jesus Christ and the message that he has given to him and the call that he's placed on his life. I find this amazing. If you were to turn to Acts chapter 26, 27 through 29, we'll read this. So, after all of this, after Paul comes before the Roman emperor, to give his final defense. He says this to King Agrippa. Do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And then Agrippa said to Paul, are you so quickly persuading me to become a Christian? Paul replied, whether quickly or not, I pray to God that not only you, but also all who are listening to me today might become such as I am, except for these chains. Now, here's what's so beautiful about this passage. In Acts 9, when Paul is met by Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, there is then an angel that goes to Ananias, telling him what to do with Paul, and he says this about Paul in Acts 9, verses 15 through 16. Go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. This was the moment where Paul was witnessing before a king. And it seems like all throughout, he had no choice but to be pulled from this direction to that direction Wondering what's going to happen and then he finds himself before a Roman Empire witnessing proclaiming the hope of the resurrection. So the good news is that God, God's purposes always find a way. Even when it seems like one's hands are bound and it seems like there is just no other option and the forces around you just keep pulling you and, and Forcing you to go in these other directions, it never takes away the opportunity that we've been given to bear witness to the hope that we have. I mean, this is an outworking of those verses in 1 Peter 3 that says, Always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you. And so the good news is that God's purpose is always find a way. Now listen to me because I think that that can be misheard or misused because I am not one for platitudes. I have seen too many people suffer to be able to offer that to anybody. I am not saying that oh, like everything happens for a reason and that when we find ourselves in places that are hard and difficult that we need to just look for the reason. That's actually not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying that we live in a, in a world of tension where, where God is ultimately enthroned because of Christ as the one who is Lord over all, but we also experience these things that seem completely other and outside of what God would ever want. And we see these in, these, in this passage from this, these different tensions taking place. Certainly God wants the Jews, wants Israel to hear the message. But there seems to be and inability for that to be the case. What I'm saying is, is that God is insistent on even in the midst of the most difficult and confusing and confounding things, he is insistent to make his purposes come to fruition, to be revealed, and to be seen. And that is ultimately the hope that we've been given because of Jesus that Jesus can interrupt our lives in the way that that he interrupted Paul. To give a new new calling, a completely reinterpretation of what he thought and understood. God is insistent that his purpose would find a way into the life of Paul, into your life. Now in this moment when Paul's hands are bound by chains and he is taken to And from these places and before these different people, God is insistent that his message will go out. And so I don't know where you are in your life right now, but hear the the good news that God's purposes find a way. And then hear the call that allegiance to the risen Lord Jesus is the point. Thanks be to God. There's an opportunity this morning to pray with others. They're going to be on the sides of the wall, but my encouragement to you is this. Maybe you won't make yourself way to the, to the sides, but I think this is an opportunity to consider your allegiances, to consider for a moment whether or not The risen Lord Jesus Christ is ultimately the one that gives your life meaning and shape and understanding. Is it Christ or is it something else? Also, another thing to consider is where do you need to trust in the hope that God has given to us because of the risen Lord Jesus? Like, where do you need to hope? If you feel despair, And if you feel hopeless, share that. Let somebody pray with you about that. Because I believe that God wants to be with you in that. And maybe not even take it away, but to be with you. And that is ultimately the hope, that God is with you in it. And that his purpose is even in the midst of it might find a way so those are my encouragements to you and if you want to stand and if it, with me now and then those of you who are um, praying if you can go to the sides may this time of singing together be an opportunity to meet with God